The following episode contains mature themes and language that may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Eva was out with some friends on a Saturday night attending a disco party. When she didn't return home on time, everybody knew something was terribly wrong. Welcome to True Crime Worldwide, a podcast where we cover crime cases all around the globe. I'm your host, Annika, and you are listening to episode four. Today, we're looking at the case of Eva Blanco, a young girl cruelly taken from this world far too soon. We start on February 17th, 1981, in Madrid, Spain. When Eva Blanco Puig was born, her and her family lived in a community called Aljit, where she was a high school student. She was the daughter of Manuel Blanco, her father, and Olga Puig, her mother. She was the oldest of three brothers, and she was 17 at the time of her murder. As the oldest child, Eva had grown up to be very responsible and was known not to go out every night and party and drink or any of the normal things teenagers do weekly. So on Saturday, April 19th, 1997, when she asked for her curfew to be extended from 11 p.m. to 12 a.m. so she could go out with a couple friends, her parents agreed without much argument. She went out with her friends in the afternoon where they played tennis. It wasn't until later that they moved on to go to a local disco party, where they stayed until 11.30 p.m. before Eva decided she had better start heading home in order to make it back in time for her curfew. Her and one of her other friends left earlier than everyone else. This female friend walked with her until they reached a vacant lot, about 700 meters from Eva's house, where they parted ways around 11.45 p.m. Eva planned to walk through said lot. This was her usual shortcut home so she could avoid the unnecessarily long detour through the town center. This same route was used by many other students at her high school to get to the school building every morning. So when she mentioned she was taking this way home, her friend thought nothing of it. When 12 a.m. hit and Eva hadn't returned home, Olga, her mother, was extremely worried. Eva had never been late for curfew before, so this was very out of character. Olga called the friends that Eva had been out with, who said she had left already so she could make it home in time. Olga alerted her husband Manuel, who was a truck driver, that Eva hadn't returned home. Manuel and his nephew, who happened to be a local police officer, began searching for her in town. They found no trace of her and Manuel returned home to Olga to discuss their next course of action. They decided to go to the local civil guard station at 1 o'clock a.m. and file an official missing persons report. When they arrived, the officers were reluctant about filing a disappearance case after only one hour. 
one of the guards actually said that all of the kids her age were on drugs and she was probably lying in someone's doorway. I don't know how an officer could tell this to a parent, but they did. By 2.30 a.m., Eva's friends, family, the civil guards, and the police began a search in Algeet and the area leading to nearby Fuente El Sai de Harama. Although a missing persons report wasn't officially filed by the civil guard until 8 o'clock a.m., Manuel visited the local civil guard station 15 times during the night and criticized the institution for not searching rural roads or using vehicles in the search before morning had hit. The civil guard responded that it was required to wait a few hours before filing missing persons reports and searching. Which is odd considering they had no problems searching for her once they realized she had not returned home. On April 20th, 1997, the morning after Eva's night out, two elderly Ajalvia residents were out for their daily walk around 9 o'clock a.m. when they came upon a road construction site between Corbra and Belvis de Harma, which was six kilometers away from Algeet. Inside of a ditch near a roundabout, the pair found a female body. They thought she had been hit by a car, so they called the police and reported it as that. Upon arrival, the civil guard noticed that the victim, who was lying face down on the ground, had actually been stabbed several times in the back. They also took note that the corpse was dressed in the same jeans, dark sweater, and mountain boots Eva had been thought to be wearing the night before. The only disturbance to the body, aside from the stab wounds, was that one sleeve of her sweater had been taken off. Authorities immediately closed the crime scene and began their investigation. Both the killer and victim were assumed to have reached the area by some kind of vehicle. Though any evidence of tire tracks had been washed away from the heavy rain the night before, most of the other forensic evidence that would normally be found at a crime scene had also been washed away from this rain, leaving authorities with very little to go on. Upon closer examination, however, two sets of footprints were found. One set that matched the victim's footwear, and one set that matched a man wearing size 42 mocassins. I had to google this, so for anyone who doesn't know, mocassins are a slipper-like shoe that appear to be worn for comfort. They're brown with a little fluffy brown lining of fur on top of it. You can Google a picture if you'd like to see, you'll probably recognize them. At 12 o'clock p.m., Eva's family contacted the regional TV station Telemadrid and requested its help publicizing the case. At 3.30 p.m., however, Manuel and Olga got the worst case scenario call. Six hours after the body had been discovered, the civil guard confirmed to the Blanco family that Eva was in fact, deceased. The news of her murder spread like wildfire, and an entire town of 12,300 people gathered outside of Eva's home at 7 p.m. to show their support to the family and their anger about the murder. While the town mourned, the coroner got to work on Eva's autopsy. Eva had been sitting inside a vehicle when she had been first attacked. She was stabbed from the side, seemingly out of nowhere, as she quickly jumped out of the car and tried to run from her killer. 
He followed her as she tried to run up a slope on the side of the road, and he continued to repeatedly stab her as they went. Many of these wounds were found mostly near her ears and the back of her head, along with on her back. They were determined to be superficial and interpreted by law enforcement as, quote, passionate, unquote, injuries. Ultimately, the first stab was the cause of Eva's death. In total, she had been stabbed 19 times, and she had succumbed to her injuries sometime between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. Her cause of death was ruled as blood loss. The murder weapon was a navaja between 8 centimeters and 10 centimeters long and 1 centimeter wide. This is just a type of knife used for offensive purposes. It's straight on the first bit of the blade, but at the end it has a very distinct curve and a sideways tip. It's often carried around as a pocket knife. During the autopsy, it was also realized that she had been both sexually assaulted and raped while she was still alive. Her hymen was freshly torn and semen from the same man was found in her mouth, underwear, and vagina. A red fiber was in Eva's mouth as well, and it was identified by the Catalonia Textile Museum and Documentation Center as belonging to a common type of car upholstery, confirming that Eva had been inside of a vehicle after her disappearance. On April 23rd, Manuel and Olga held a funeral for Eva, and 2,000 people from the town attended. Now, we're going to talk about some of the earlier police theories. Because Eva had been found dressed and showed no signs of violence besides the knife wounds, the coroner and the civil guard believed that the sex had been consensual, and the murder was a result of an argument afterwards. Manuel and Olga disputed this and said that their daughter had been kidnapped and raped at knife point, and then she was murdered to avoid charges and jail time for the first crime. The main running theory, however, was that the suspect was someone Eva knew, who offered her a ride home, which she accepted. The man took her to the construction site, which was well known as a lover's lane, and the two had consensual sex. They had gotten in an argument about something afterwards, and either out of anger or fear, the perpetrator began attacking her. The first suspect was Eva's ex-boyfriend, Miguel, who had recently broken up with her. He was ruled out after being questioned only once, so we can only assume he had a solid alibi. After this, the investigation centered around adult men known to Eva's family who she may trust. On May 29, 1997, the police finally announced that the investigation was no longer excluding a stranger. In response, Eva's friends and family said that she must have been forced into the car, as she would never accept a ride from a stranger. Some neighbors linked the crime to a strange blue car seen in town following another girl around midnight, in which there was a 20-year-old looking blonde man driving the car. Nobody bothered to write down the car's license plate number, so this lead dried up pretty quickly. The semen sample was kept a secret until DNA samples were collected from Eva's male relatives and acquaintances, which was all collected in secret and then compared to the sample. Eva's father was ruled out when he left behind a cigarette he had smoked while discussing the case with police. No matches were made from this part of the investigation. The case didn't receive too many tips as it was drawn out, 
and the next clue was only found eight months after the murder. Eva's mother found two notebooks hidden between drawers in Eva's room. They were labeled, quote, 95 to 96, unquote, and, quote, 96 to 97, unquote, and they were written by Eva until the day of her murder. Many of these pages only had Eva and Miguel written on them over and over again in different pen colors. This was the name of her ex-boyfriend. There are photos of this online and it looks very creepy. It is just the two names written repetitively all over the page. The last two pages before Eva's disappearance, after the couple had broken up, the strange writings had changed to something even stranger. Quote, Eva and three, four, two, one, one, zero, unquote. All attempts to discover the meaning of this code were unsuccessful. Many believe it was a name, as Eva used to write Miguel's name in the same kind of code before they actually dated. To this day, we have no idea what it means. This may just be a complete red herring, but it's a bit odd that just before she disappeared, she was writing something other than something she had written on every single page. After the information about the semen was released, and Eva's father found out that even his DNA had been compared, he began a campaign for other Algae residents to provide voluntary DNA samples in an effort to help catch his daughter's killer. The mayor of Algae backed this project, and in November 1999, he made an official announcement petitioning all male residents over the age of 16 to provide voluntary hair or saliva samples. The proposition was unanimously rejected by the Spanish Judicial Organization, who considered it, quote, simple-minded, disproportionate, useless, and a potential stigma for algae residents who refused to provide DNA samples without a court order, and it was their legal right to do so, unquote. Either way, Eva's father received 2,013 samples from residents, and he deposited them in the local courthouse until it was decided what to do with them. On March 30th, 2000, it was decided that the testing should only be done on samples of people who could be deemed suspicious, and not just volunteers. Only 45 samples in total were tested, including 12 residents of Manuel, six relatives of Olga, any of Eva's acquaintances, and any people with a previous criminal record, especially that of sexual assault or rape. This case went cold until 2007. It was then that there was a renewed interest in Eva's case, and there were multiple attempts to bring media attention back to it. On April 26, 2013, Vicente Gerido Genovis, a psychologist and criminologist, gave an official profile of the criminal, which was completely different than what the civil guard had been thinking of the perpetrator. His report said, quote, A stalker who was not known or barely known to Blanco. The lack of defensive wounds could be explained because the victim was being threatened before agreeing to have sex with the attacker. The criminal would be of low intelligence, uneducated, and with a low-skilled profession and emotionally immature, since he sought sex with a teenager rather than a woman closer in age. He probably had no family because they would have noticed him coming late and inquired him about it. 
It was also possible that he continued his criminal career elsewhere in Spain and that he was in prison for other attacks, unquote. After watching a program on it, a woman contacted the authorities and said that she had seen a suspicious man in the road construction site around 8 o'clock a.m. that morning. He was walking in the rain with no umbrella, and it appeared he had not slept all night. He appeared to have also been looking for something before he got in a white Renault 18. The civil guard deemed this testimony as reliable, as several other witnesses in the past had reported a Renault 18 before, but this information had not been released to the media at this point. The car was also comparable with the fiber found in Eva's mouth. On October 28, 2013, the police released a facial composite made using the new witness. The suspect was a man between ages 35 and 40 years old in 1997, between 5'6 and 5'9, between 165 pounds and 175 pounds, and with short, spiky brown hair. He had sunken eyes, and he was wearing a white t-shirt with a v-neck sweater. A phone number and email address were created for possible tips. By January 2014, over 100 emails had been received. At the end of 2013, a new sample of semen was tested, and the identity of the suspect was determined to be of North African descent. The Civil Guard petitioned the 300 North African male residents in Algete in 1997 to provide voluntary samples. The response was overwhelmingly positive, even though many had moved to other countries over the years. A man named Fouad Chell, who was living in France, shared his Y chromosome, and over 97% of his DNA was shared with the killer. This would have only been possible if the man was a sibling of the perpetrator. Fouad Chell had two brothers that he knew of. One lived in Morocco and had never been a resident of Algeet. This was the one that submitted a DNA sample as well, so he was cleared. This left one brother. A European arrest warrant was issued for the third Chell brother, Ahmed Chell Gerj. On October 1st, 2015, Ahmed was arrested outside of his workplace in France. Now, let's talk about Ahmed Chal Gersh. He was 52 years old at the time of his arrest, born on March 1st, 1963 in Taza, Morocco. He was 34 at the time of the murder. He came to Spain when he married a 20-year-old woman in 1989. Well, he was 26 and he became an official Spanish citizen in the 1990s. The couple had three children, one born in 1989, one born in 1993, and one born in 1997, the same year as Eva's murder. His wife had been five months pregnant when she had died. The couple were never officially listed as residents of Algeet, as their home was provided to them by Ahmed's employer, and it was never actually in his name. The home was only a four-kilometer walk from the murder scene. The family then moved to France in 1999. They were legally married in Spain, but they separated in 2003, and Ahmed remarried to a 24-year-old Moroccan student soon after the separation. 
While in France, he worked as a welder, and few people in the country and at his work liked him. One of his co-workers, who was later interviewed, described him as, quote, not very social, aggressive after drinking, and pervy with women, unquote. Ahmed's ex-wife later admitted that he became physically aggressive with her when he drank. When he was confronted with the DNA evidence at his arrest, Ahmed told the police a new story. He claimed he had gone out for a walk alone and that two unidentified men had grabbed him, brought him to Eva's body, and forced him to masturbate over it. His ex-wife then told journalists that he had actually left the house in the company of his brothers, and his brothers testified that they had been at the same disco as Eva. The three talked to her after she had an argument with someone who they assumed was her ex-boyfriend. She actually left the disco with these three at one point, but went back inside with her friends around 11 o'clock p.m. On October 5th, Ahmed unsuccessfully tried to kill himself with a small shard of glass in his cell. Two days later, he agreed to be deported to Spain to stand trial. On October 13th, there was a preliminary hearing held, and Ahmed declined to make a statement but agreed to give a DNA sample, all on the advice of his legal team. Ahmed Chalgersh was formally charged with murder, rape, illegal detonation, and was sent to Soto de Rio prison as he awaited his trial. His lawyer requested to have him released on bail while they awaited the DNA results, but the request was denied. He was also put on suicide watch due to his previous attempt. When the DNA test came back, the test confirmed that the semen belonged to Ahmed beyond a doubt. Ahmed's legal team got to work right away, coming up with a new strategy to get their client out of the charges. His defense team first tried to argue that there was no evidence tying their client to the crime besides the DNA. When this approach didn't work, as DNA is pretty damning evidence, they tried something else. They claimed Eva had neo-Nazi ties, and the neo-Nazi group killed her and forced Ahmed to masturbate over her body. This claim came from pretty much nowhere, and I don't think anyone in that courtroom took it too seriously, but Ahmed's ex-wife tried to corroborate his story by changing her original claims to multiple different journalists. She testified that Ahmed had been home sometime between 10 o'clock p.m. and 11 o'clock p.m. at the latest, and he had been mugged before he got home and seemed pretty shaken up. When she was cross-examined, however, it came out that Eva had been with her friends until 11.45 p.m., so there was no possible way Ahmed's TNA would have been found on Eva if he had, in fact, been home by 11 o'clock p.m. On January 8, 2016, a team of prison psychiatrists and psychologists supported lifting the anti-suicide measures placed on Ahmed, which Ahmed's defense team had requested. On January 15th, there was another hearing held. This time, Ahmed testified something different yet again. On the stand, he said that two people, who were apparently neo-Nazis, forced him into a car with red seats, and this is where the fiber in Eva's mouth came from. He said that the neo-Nazis threatened him with a navaha in order to make him ejaculate over Eva, who was alive inside the car at this point. Like his ex-wife, when he was cross-examined, his story began to fall apart. 
He was asked if the neo-Nazis forced him to have intercourse with Eva, in which he would have ejaculated in her vagina, and he denied ever penetrating her. When asked why his semen was found inside of her body and in her underwear, he had no answer. On January 29, 2016, the day after the latest hearing, Ahmed Chow Gersh was found dead in his prison cell after having hung himself with his shoelaces. On February 15, 2016, the prosecution was formally ended. After 18 years, this case had finally been solved and Manuel and Olga finally got justice for their daughter. The sources for this episode include FletcherMabel.com, TypicallySpanish.com, UnitedYouthJournalists.com, WordPress.com, TheLocal.es, and Wikipedia. The Wikipedia page was where most of this information was found, and if you want to read an in-depth view of this case, you can check out the Eva Blanco Wikipedia page. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. I would really appreciate it if you followed and left a five-star review as it really helps the podcast grow and helps get the word out to other people that we exist. This episode was written, read, and edited by Annika Penny. The intro music was written and produced by Ben James, who you can find on YouTube at B-E-N-J-E-M-I-M-A. The cover photo was taken and edited by Kyle Shaw, who you can find on both YouTube and Instagram. True Crime Worldwide is produced by H. Penny Entertainment.